Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us for worship. As we've seen over the past seven weeks, Timothy, the young church leader who was mentored by the Apostle Paul, had a difficult job ahead of him in Ephesus. He was charged to expose, rebuke, and resist false teachers who had arisen from within the church and were leading believers in Jesus astray. He was charged to remind the Christians there of how to behave within the church, which he calls the household of God. And through it all, Paul reminds Timothy to guard his own spiritual and physical health as well. And as if that's not enough to keep Timothy busy, keep in mind that the city of Ephesus was notoriously hostile to Christians. So in addition to the internal problems that the church was facing, there were likely external pressures and challenges to deal with as well. So at times, Timothy must have been discouraged. If you put it all together, you would think that he must have felt exhausted. So as we close the book today, Paul gives Timothy one final charge. He gives him one last halftime speech before he heads back out onto the field. On top of that, Paul gives Timothy one final teaching to share with the Christians in that church. And it's a teaching that Christians like us and a church like ours would also be wise to obey. Surely Paul is praying that these last few words of the book would spur the discouraged and exhausted Timothy to press on in his calling, to keep his eyes focused on his mission, and to persevere until he receives his reward. And I'm praying that these words would encourage and challenge and inspire us to do the same. So open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Feel free to follow along, whether you're here or joining us on our live stream. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have to gather together. Thank you that it is late August. It's basically the end of summer, and we're here, and we're worshiping. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty earlier in the year about what the future could look like and what the future could hold. And there's still a lot of uncertainty, but I pray that we would take a moment this morning and just thank you that it's the end of summer and we're here. It's the end of summer and we're worshiping you. And Lord, I pray that we would also remember that you know the future. You know all things. You, you are good. We can trust you. And you work all things out for good for those who love you. So, Lord, remind us of that, even in these uncertain times. And, Lord, I pray that you would watch over us as we worship you. And not just those people in this room, although we're happy to see people in this room. We're happy to see new faces and old faces and people we haven't seen in a long time. But, Lord, we also pray for those who aren't here right now. Uh, There are multiple families in our church who haven't been back here yet. Uh, for very legitimate, understandable reasons. Uh, And so, Lord, I pray for those families. Uh, I pray that they would know that they are not forgotten about, that we are still praying for them, that we still love them. And, Lord, we look forward to the day, and we ask you to hasten the day when we can really, truly be back together again as a church, as a household of God, as a family. 
And Lord, thank you for First Timothy as we wrap this sermon series up. Thank you for the teaching that you've given us, the encouragement that you give us, the challenge that you give us. Thank you for the gift of your word, and thank you that your word tells us about your son. Thank you for Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross for our sins. He's the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who calls us together and brings us together. And so, Lord, we glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Paul's thinking back to the passage we read last week, all the characteristics, all the habits of the false teachers. Paul's telling Timothy to do the opposite. See what they did? Don't do that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the first thing Paul does in these opening verses, verses 11 through 16, is really quite simple. He reminds Timothy of who he is. Specifically, Paul reminds Timothy of his identity and calling in Christ by giving him a unique title. That title is Man of God. Oh, Man of God. Now, that title may not sound all that remarkable to us, but it is not thrown around lightly in the Bible. That title is usually reserved for prophets and kings. Figures like Moses or Samuel or David or Elijah or Elisha. And Timothy, as someone who is raised with a deep knowledge of the Old Testament, may have recognized the significance of that title. Perhaps Paul calling him man of God is just the right encouragement that Timothy needed. But Paul also reminds Timothy of his good confession made in the presence of many witnesses. That may look back to an ordination service of sorts for Timothy, the occasion when he was set apart for ministry. Or it could look back at the moment that he was baptized. But either way, Paul reminds Timothy of his identity. He reminds him of his calling by referring to him as a man of God. But Paul doesn't just remind Timothy of his identity. He reminds Timothy of the mission that God has given him. That mission is to fight the good fight. Back in chapter 1, Paul challenged Timothy to wage the good warfare. This task that Timothy has been set apart for, to guard the deposit of the one true gospel, has not been easy for him and probably won't be easy moving forward. It would be a battle. It would be a war. 
But the mission remains the same, even when it's difficult, and even when Timothy is tired. And then finally, Paul reminds Timothy of the reward that awaits him as he presses on in this calling and this mission. The reward of eternal life. In the same way that Jesus fulfilled his calling as the Messiah. In the same way that Jesus was faithful to the mission that God gave him all the way to the cross where he suffered and died for sinners. And in the same way that Jesus received his reward and now sits in the Father's presence and glory. Timothy is also to fulfill his calling. Be faithful to his mission and look forward to his reward of eternal life in God's presence. And that future reward, that promise, should motivate Timothy's life right now. It should motivate his life, especially as he wrestles with discouragement and exhaustion. Looking forward to that eternal reward in the future means fleeing the sin that seduced the false teachers right now. It means pursuing holiness in his life and ministry right now. Timothy's calling, Timothy's mission, and Timothy's future reward can and will sustain him and motivate him to persevere until Christ returns or he dies, whichever one comes first. Now, again, Timothy is in a unique position. A man of God in the pages of Scripture puts you in some pretty rare company. However, I'd argue that at some basic level, Paul's words to this man of God can also apply to regular old believers right now. Believers like you and believers like me. Again, that title, Man of God, may not be used often in Scripture. But Paul does have another title that he likes to attribute to every Christian. And that title is Saint. Saint. Paul calls the Christians in Rome saints. He calls the Christians in Corinth saints. He even calls the Christians here in Ephesus with all of their problems saints. Think about that for a minute. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a saint. There might not be any books written about you. There might not be any tall tales of the miraculous feats of godliness that you performed. There might not be any songs written about you. There might not be any people feasting or fasting on some day dedicated to your memory. But if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a saint. You are a man of God. You are a woman of God. You too have been given a calling, a mission, and a promise of eternal life to take hold of. You too have been set apart by the same glorious God who set Timothy apart. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You've been set apart by that God. You've been saved by that God. You've been adopted into that God's family. You, me, 
seemingly unremarkable, ordinary people are saints, men and women of God. Think about that. So I think Paul's words to Timothy can also apply to us. Maybe you too are discouraged by problems within the church and opposition from without. Maybe you too are perplexed and troubled by false teaching among those you care for. Maybe you too are exhausted in the calling and the mission God has given you and you are tempted to throw in the towel. Well, remember who you are, O man of God. Remember who you are, O woman of God. Remember that God has declared you a saint. Remember your identity. Remember your mission. Remember your calling. Remember your eternal reward. And press on. Take hold of it. God has declared you to be a saint. So live like it. Picking up in verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. One of the most practical, boots-on-the-ground ways that we live as the men and women of God, Scripture calls us to be. One of the ways that we live as the saints God has declared us to be by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus is seen in how we relate to money. Earlier in the book, Paul said that those given the noble task of serving as elders must not be lovers of money. They must not be Greedy for dishonest gain. As we saw last week, that characterizes false and ungodly teachers, not good and godly leaders. So Timothy and all the saints within the church, you and me included, are called to something different when it comes to our money. To get even more specific, we're called to a word that Paul used last week that we didn't examine at length. That Zach taught us about a few minutes ago. We're called to contentment. Now, what exactly is contentment? Is it the same as the modern trends of simplicity or minimalism? Is it a stoic sense of self-sufficiency as if we have everything we need within us and we don't need anybody else's help? We're content. Is it a Spartan refusal of comforts and joys and good things? Well, to put it simply, contentment is a willingness to be satisfied with having our basic needs met. It's a refusal to be dominated by thoughts of what we don't have and ultimately don't really need. Contentment is not a refusal of the good things that God gives us to enjoy. As we mentioned earlier in the book, we are not ascetics. Contentment is a satisfaction with what God gives us rather than dwelling on what he doesn't. The author of Hebrews writes about contentment in his letter, which really is more like a sermon. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. 
Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Paul himself knew a thing or two about contentment from his own personal experience. He writes in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As Paul sat in jail, he wrote that he already had what really mattered in eternity. He had Christ. He knew that Christ would never leave him or forsake him. And as long as Paul had Christ, what could man do to him? Having Christ soften the blow of not having anything else as he sat in prison writing to the Philippians. Paul was content with Jesus. So contentment with what we have, especially when it comes to money and worldly possessions, which Paul addresses here, is a healthy attitude for every Christian to pursue. First, because we have God, and what else do we need besides him? But also think back to last week, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul said there, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Perhaps you've recently heard the term affluenza. Affluenza is a combination of the words affluent, as in rich, wealthy, and influenza, as in the flu, the illness. A painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. That's affluenza. In other words, it's the opposite of contentment. But Christians are called to contentment, not affluenza. It's one of the ways that we embrace and display our calling and our mission as saints, as men and women of God. It's one of the ways that we show the world that our true reward is eternal life, not temporary stuff. For wealthy believers, that means refusing to let our wealth or our possessions inflate our egos. It means trusting God for our well-being, not the stock market or our 401ks or our savings accounts. It means gratefully enjoying what God has given us already rather than obsessing over what we lack. It means sharing what we have generously with those who have less. And it means refusing to worship what God gives us over God himself. 
As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 21, which Paul echoes at the end of 1 Timothy, it means laying up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. The treasures that we lay up on earth, moth, rust, thieves can destroy them or take them. But we pursue that which is truly life. And as long as we have what is truly life, we can be content no matter what we lack in this life. So one of the most practical ways that we live as men and women of God, as saints, is by having a God-honoring relationship with money. While verses 17 through 19 are mainly directed at wealthy Christians, there is a lesson here for every single believer. All of us, whether we're rich or poor or somewhere in between, whether we have plenty or little, every single one of us can be tempted by the love of money. For every single one of us, the love of money can be a root of all kinds of evils. In the words of 4th century preacher John Chrysostom, nothing so generally produces pride and arrogance as wealth. Around the same time, Augustine tells Christians to put your hand in the purse in such a way that you release your heart from it. Put your hand in it, but not your heart. And while our church does have a long track record of giving generously, and if you don't believe me, just look at our giving over the past six months in the middle of a global health and economic crisis. The truth remains that we are not immune to falling into the temptations that material wealth provides. It can be a snare leading to harmful desires, ruin, destruction, and pangs. We are not above that temptation. So again, as saints, as men and women of God, may we run away from that sin and run towards righteousness. May we remember our calling, remember our mission, remember our identity, remember our eternal reward, rather than chasing after temporary prizes that we can't take with us, that ultimately will not last, that never have been and never will be truly life. We close the passage in verses 20 and 21. Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So after eight Sundays of reading First Timothy, we finally see that phrase that inspired the whole sermon series. The deposit. That phrase can also be translated sacred trust. Sacred trust. So picture a precious heirloom, something priceless, something irreplaceable, something that should be protected and maintained with diligence and care. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the deposit, the sacred trust. It is to be guarded at all costs in our lives, in our homes, in our ministries, and in our church. Whatever calls it into question must be confronted. Whatever threatens its flourishing must be addressed. 
whether it's sin from within or false teaching from without. Men and women of God, saints like Paul and saints like Timothy and saints like you and saints like me are all called to this mission. We are all called to guard the deposit. We're called to guard it in our heads, guard it in our hearts, our households, God's household, our words, and our actions. This is our identity, O men and women of God. This is our calling. This is our mission. And our reward is sure. So may we also fight this good fight. May we also wage this good warfare. May we also take hold of Christ. May we remember that we are saints by faith in his broken body and shed blood. May we live like the saints God has declared us to be. May we guard this deposit. And may grace be with us as we go. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text that we've read. Thank you that your word is living and breathing and active. Thank you that every single part of your word has something to give us. And Lord, thank you for this reminder that we are saints, that we are men and women of God by virtue of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So, Lord, help us to live like saints. Help us to guard this deposit, to protect and honor this sacred trust. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we are a household of God. People from different places and different backgrounds and different experiences have been called together as brothers and sisters in your name. So, Lord, again, knowing that we are men of God, knowing that we are women of God, that you have declared us to be these saints. Help us live like saints. For the good of this church, for the good of those who don't know you, for the good of everyone around us, and ultimately for your glory. Remind us of our future reward, that promise that is sure that Christ has secured for us. May it motivate our lives today. We love you, we honor you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.